Well, let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 6, to that passage our friend Crystal read for us a, moment, a few moments ago. Mark chapter 6, if you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there are some on the table in the foyer for you to grab on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Mark chapter 6, we continue our journey through uh, this gospel. And as you're finding your way there, um, let me ask you a question. Let me give you a question to consider. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to die for? Now, before you start answering that question, let's be sure that we heard the question. I didn't ask, who are you willing to die for? I think if I asked who you're willing to die for, answers to that question would come quickly. Faces and names of people we love dearly would pop up quite easily. We would think of our spouses. Our spouses. We would think of our children. We would think of our, our friends. We would think about those that we love dearly. But the question, which puts a different kind of nuance on it, especially when you consider the story that we're looking at tonight, what are you willing to die for? See, that gets after not so much the people in our lives that we love, that gets after the cause with which our life is engaged. Asking the question, what are we willing to die for, that speaks to our beliefs. That speaks to our convictions. That speaks to that which makes us who we are as people. It speaks to our values. It speaks to our core as human beings. What are you willing to to die for? It's an important question for us to consider because although we may hold many beliefs, ultimately it is our convictions that will hold on to us. We'll hold many beliefs as we journey through this world, but it is our convictions that will hold on to us. It is our convictions that will carry us all the days of our lives so that when we come to the end of our days, we may be found faithful to the end. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible is found in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's a wonderful passage describing men and women who had a core conviction about the li- their lives, a-, a core conviction that reflected their trust in their God and ultimately the provision of the Messiah in Jesus. And so it's a fascinating chapter as you read through it. You'll see all these lives of men and women who gave their lives for that which mattered most to them, who were held to together by some core convictions, many of which, um, by holding it, it cost many of them their lives. And so the chapter begins in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, kind of clarifying, we're not just talking about beliefs that we hold, we're talking about convictions that hold on to us. This is what Hebrews 11:1 1 is getting at. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but the conviction of things not seen. It's this core conviction within us that will carry us all the days of our lives so that we may be found faithful in the end. And this makes a world of difference to the lives that we lead on a day-to-day basis. It makes a world of difference to what we think about when we wake up in the mornings. It makes a world of difference when we are rubbing shoulders with strangers on the streets. It makes a world of difference when we're interacting with a boss who, is, who we just can't seem to get to like us very much. It makes a world of difference when we have a core conviction about us carrying us through the lives that we lead. You see, it was core convictions that held Justin Martyr, one of the early leaders in the life of the church, held him together when the Roman emperor was cracking down on Christians, and he wrote the emperor a letter, and he would say, you know, you can kill us, but you can't harm us. That's a core conviction. That's a belief about reality that was holding him together when things got tough. It was conviction that held Martin Luther together when he stood before the highest court of his day, and he was 
He was challenged to denounce his belief and his trust and his reliance upon the authority of the scriptures. And he says, here I stand and I can do, I can do nothing else. The, uh, the scriptures are my authority. The scriptures shape my convictions and I cannot wander from them. That was conviction coming through Martin Luther. Perhaps you saw the movie, A Man for All Seasons, came out several years ago now, but it told the story of Sir Thomas More, who was leading out in the life of the church uh, just prior to the Reformation when some things got a little sideways, and King Henry VIII tried to uh, have all the leaders in the church sign an oath saying that he was now, uh, that his kingdom and his reign would now uh, be placed above the church. And so in the movie, uh, we get a picture of Sir Thomas More standing against Henry VIII, and eventually it cost him his life. And he's, as he's going to his execution, he's, he's given one moment, one opportunity to speak. And as he's standing there, getting ready to be executed, this is what he says. He says, you know, I am commanded by the king to be brief. And since I am the king's obedient servant, brief I will be. I die his majesty's good servant, but I die God's servant first. And in that moment, he was showing his conviction. He was showing what was holding him together in that moment. He was showing that it's not just the beliefs that he held, it was the convictions that were holding on to him, revealing ultimately that what you and I give our lives to should, should be that which we, give our li- we are willing to give our lives for. And we see all these dynamics coming together in this passage when we uh, turn to this story uh, dealing with the death of John the Baptist, dealing with his execution. And it's a gruesome story. We're talking about the head of this prophet being presented on a platter. It's not a pretty scene. It's grotesque. It's gruesome. But it's what went down. And as you step into this passage of Mark chapter 6, understand that this is the only passage in the whole gospel that doesn't explicitly deal with Jesus. It doesn't explicitly deal with Jesus in this moment. Instead, it deals with John the Baptist and what happened to him. Now, you know, perhaps, that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was Jesus' cousin, and he was a prophet. He was understood to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who stepped into the world to kind of prepare the way for the Christ's arrival in the world. And so he gave his life to that calling. He gave his life to that mission. That conviction about who he was in relation to the Christ carried him to the very end of his days. And you think about John the Baptist. Consider the estimation with which Jesus held him in. Jesus thought highly of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. This is what Jesus would say about him. He'd say, you know, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one No one greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise. Jesus said of everyone who has been born among women or born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. But why is that? Why, Why did Jesus think so highly about this guy? Well, I think his greatness was tied to the convictions that held him together. I think his greatness was tied to the convictions that kind of fortified his faithfulness to the end. And so you consider John the Baptist and this esteem that Jesus gives him, and then you step into this story and you find another character there. You find a guy named Herod, and Herod was considered by many people to be a great man. In fact, he's described there in verse 14 as King Herod. Now, understand that when Mark writes that description, King Herod, he's kind of writing that tongue-in-cheek. Because Herod wasn't really a king, and I think what we're being cued into in that moment is that Herod's greatness was an illusion. 
Much like a lot of greatness in this world, it's illusory. It's an illusion. It doesn't match with what's real according to the kingdom of God. And so kind of tongue-in-cheek, Herod's referred to as king, but he wasn't really a king. You see, this particular Herod was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who was, a, who was the ruler of the area when Jesus was born. He was the one that executed all the kids in an effort to stomp out the Messiah. Well, this Herod is that Herod's son. And this Herod is one of four, four sons that king Herod the Great had. And then when he died, he divided his kingdom up into four parts. And he allowed one of his sons to rule each quadrant. And so Herod wasn't so much a king as much as he was a tetrarch. He was a ruler of one quarter of the reign and the region that Herod the Great left upon his death. And so greatness as it relates to Herod is kind of an illusion. But this was a guy who desired to be great. He was a guy who wanted to be considered powerful. He wanted to be considered great. He wanted everyone to respect him. He was the kind of guy who would manipulate he would manipulate moments in order to get whatever he wanted, including, including his brother Philip's wife, this woman named Herodias. He, he managed to manipulate this scene this, and, and take his brother's wife as his own. And this was a gesture that John the Baptist did not think highly of. It was one that got him into trouble from the prophet of God's perspective. And so John the Baptist would call him out on this, saying, look, your marriage is illegitimate. It is unlawful for you to take her as your wife. And so he cracked down on Herod pretty hard, and this is what got John the Baptist in so much trouble. And so when you come into this moment, you have two characters in this story. You have Herod, whose greatness is an illusion. Then you have John the Baptist, whom Jesus would say is the greatest of all. And then you read on in verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, referring to Jesus' reputation of all the things that Jesus was doing in the region, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's, that is why these miraculous things are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so what's going on in this moment is, is Herod is confused about what's going down with Jesus and his apostles. Everything that we talked about last week, he's saying, all this is happening, and I don't really know who this Jesus is. And so he's, Mark's putting forward some popular explanations about Jesus' identity, and it just shows how confused everybody was. It just showed how baffled everyone was about who Jesus is and what Jesus was about. And the only person who's not confused in this story is, in fact, John the Baptist, or was, in fact, John the Baptist. All this confusion about who the Christ is, about who Jesus is. But John the Baptist was clear because John the Baptist carried with him a conviction about the Christ that you and I need to kind of hold on to tonight. You see, when you take all things into consideration about John the Baptist's life and his ministry, how he conducted himself in the world that is, you're going to see four kind of themes converging together, all in relation to how he viewed the Christ. The first theme was what we might call humility. Humility characterized John the Baptist's core conviction, and his humility sounded something like this. John the Baptist was a guy who was quick to tell anyone and everyone that I am not the Christ. There were moments in John the Baptist's ministry where his popularity rivaled Jesus, and people would come to him and say, hey, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the great one that we should be looking for? And John the Baptist was quick to defer. And so in humility, he would say, I am not the Christ. This goes down in John chapter 1, verse 20. In fact, it's, it's emphatic. He says, it says that John the Baptist confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And you know, that's a sentence that some of us need to learn as we engage others with the gospel. 
That's a sentence some of us need to learn as in our parenting. That's a sentence many of us need to learn in our counseling and our engagement of others. We need to learn that sentence, I am not the Christ. We need to embrace this conviction that you and I are not the savior of anyone's lives. We cannot change hearts. We cannot do the things that only the Christ can do. We need that humility. We need that sober-mindedness. If we're going to be carried along through this world with a core gospel conviction, understanding I am not the Christ, it's that simple. But not only do you see humility in John the Baptist's declaration that I am not the Christ, not only are we humble about the fact that we are not the Christ, we are clear about the fact that he, that Jesus is the Christ. And you see this happening all throughout John the Baptist's ministry. He'd be quick to say, no, I'm not the Christ, but he would be quick also to point people to the Christ. You see this go down in John chapter 1 verse 29 where he's hanging out and Jesus comes walking by and John points in his direction and says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John knew who he wasn't and he knew who Jesus was. That's the beginning of gospel conviction. We need to know who we are, which means we know who we're not. And then we need to know who the Messiah is, who the Savior is, who's the one who's holding us together as we journey through this world. But not only do you see his humility and his clarity in that, there's a sense of urgency in John the Baptist's life and ministry. There's an urgency to him because not only did he believe that he wasn't the Christ and that Jesus was, he actually carried the conviction that everyone needed to know the Christ. He believed every person he came in contact with needed to know who Jesus is. No one was exempt from his proclamation of the word of God. No one was immune to what he was offering in preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. Not even Herod. Not even the one who was on top of everything in that particular region. Not even Herod was immune from needing to know who the Christ is. This is why John the Baptist would have the audacity to, to call him out on the stuff that kind of shows his need. And so he steps up and he tells Herod, look... Your marriage is unlawful. It's not right. In fact, he's, what's ironic about that moment, get this. What's strange about what John the Baptist says to Herod is that he's taking an Old Testament law, an Old Testament command that Herod didn't even believe. Herod was not a Jew. Herod was not a part of that culture. He was an outsider as far as the Jews were concerned. But John the Baptist still held him accountable to that which God had spoken in the Old Testament. And that is an incredibly sobering thought. He did not think Herod was immune or somehow unaccountable to God's standards as they were written down in the Old Testament scriptures. And that's something we should consider today in our culture, in our climate, as we, as we wonder, well, is it really appropriate for me to point people to Jesus? Is it really appropriate to me to talk about morality? Is it really appropriate for me to try to hold out God's standards of holiness and his standards for all kinds of things? Is it really appropriate for us to, to champion certain things and to hold expectations of others? Well, if we're taking John the Baptist as a cue, if he's our model in this moment, which I think he's being presented as a model in this moment, then we need to consider how everyone needs the Christ, and we need to let that sense of urgency compel us into the lives that we lead. And we need to stop making decisions for everyone else, assuming that they are never going to believe the gospel or assuming that they don't really need to believe the gospel. We need to put things on them so that they can come to, that own, to their own conclusion about Jesus. So we have this urgency within us as we follow Christ through the world, this conviction that should blossom out of us that everyone, everyone needs the Christ. 
And so you have an urgency in John the Baptist, but not just urgency. You have integrity in him, and I love this about him. There's an integrity to John the Baptist that says, no matter who I'm talking to, I'm going I'm to communicate the same message. It didn't matter if he was talking to Herod or if he was talking to a homeless person. He made the same demand for everyone. Repent and believe the gospel. That's integrity. Integrity says it doesn't matter who's standing in front of me. I'm going to communicate the same reality to them about who Jesus is and about what Jesus desires for them. Whether I'm talking about a religious person or an irreligious person, a rich person or a poor person, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs the Christ, and so everyone is pleaded with to repent and believe the gospel in the same precise way. So you see these convictions kind of swelling up in John the Baptist. This is what characterized his life and his ministry, humility, clarity, urgency, and integrity. And I pray that we would share those same convictions in the life of our church. And as you consider this story, you have all this confusion in verses 14 through 17, confusion about the Christ. John the Baptist is relatively clear. Yeah, he had his moments where he needed some clarification and he talked to Jesus or sent some messengers to Jesus to get some clarity on certain things. But that overall, his life was held together by his his proximity to who Christ is and what he believed Christ desired for those around him. And so as he was going about his ministry, as he was proclaiming this, these, these words, delivering this message and engaging in this ministry, uh, his, his life actually affected Herod in some ways. So you check out verse 17 and you consider how uh, this confusion about Jesus has kind of kick-started some memories in Herod's life. So he's now thinking back on uh, his experience with John the Baptist. So we pick up in verse 17. That's what's going on here. It's kind of like a flashback in a movie. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, referring to Herod's wife. She had a grudge, uh, better translation, she nursed a grudge. She was harboring a grudge against John the Baptist. So much so that she wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't do it. For Herod, get this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, this is a strange development in Herod's life. So John the Baptist is carrying out his calling. He's being the voice in the wilderness. He's preparing the way of the Lord. And, his, and Herod's conscience is beginning to stir in light of what he's heard about John the Baptist's message as well as what he's been observing in John the Baptist. So much so that he, he considers, he, he fears John. Now that word fear in verse 20, it's the same type of fear that you read about elsewhere in Scripture. It speaks to this idea of awe and respect. He held John the Baptist in high regard, not because he agreed with John the Baptist, but because he was intrigued by John the Baptist. He was perplexed by this guy. And so as he's interacting with John the Baptist, uh, his conscience begins to stir. Something begins to swell up within him because John the Baptist is, in a sense, challenging the very foundation of Herod's life and worldview. And he's doing that in this way. You know, Herod as a man who desired greatness, as a man who desired power, as a man who desired respect, Herod had embraced a worldview that says, above all else, power's what we want. 
he embraced a worldview that is quite common today. It's actually the same worldview that uh, J.K. Rowling communicates in the Harry Potter series, where you get to this moment in the first book where Voldemort, or he who must not be named, steps up, and he, he says, you know, there is neither goodness or evil, just power. There is neither good nor evil, just power, and those too, too weak to seek it. This is Herod's worldview. He believed that what mattered was greatness that comes through the power you're able to assemble over the course of your life. And so this type of worldview carries with this idea that if you want, if you talk about being good or if you talk about evil, if you talk about morality in those types of categories, this type of worldview, which again is quite common today, it suggests that you will only talk about goodness and evil in order to get something out of it that you have some skin in the game, so you might use morality in order to gain power. But then Herod, who's marked out by this type of worldview, he, he meets John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a living, breathing contradiction to that worldview. John the Baptist is communicating a message about Herod's lifestyle and pointing him to the Messiah with absolutely nothing to gain. John the Baptist has everything to lose in his relationship with Herod. He could have kept his mouth, his mouth shut. He could have avoided engaging that particular moral issue. But John the Baptist doesn't do it. And so John the Baptist is a living, breathing contradiction to the very foundation upon which Herod had built his life. And I think this is a fascinating dynamic because if Herod's worldview is true, if all that matters is the accumulation of power and greatness as the world defines power and greatness, then a guy like John the Baptist should not exist. A guy like John the Baptist should not exist. And so his very presence on the scene is shaking the very foundations of, of Herod's life. John the Baptist has nothing to gain, everything, everything to lose. And so let me just ask you, is your life and ministry capable of shaking the false foundations upon which people are building their lives? I wonder what it would look like if you and I began to love people in such a way that we became living, breathing contradictions to the false foundations they are building their lives upon. What would it look like if we were really engaging in relationships where we were showing love unilaterally? where we were showing love unconditionally, where we were serving people sacrificially in such a way that there really was nothing for us to gain by doing it? What if we engaged the kind of life and ministry that says, you know, I have nothing to gain by serving the city of Seattle in these ways. In fact, we have everything to lose. We might lose a friendship. We might lose respect. We might lose this. We might lose that. But we're so gripped by the conviction of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about that we're willing to live our lives in a way that contradicts the false foundations that people are building their lives upon. What would it look like if we were engaging the city in this unilateral kind of way? What would it look like if that conviction of the Christ and, and this whole idea, I mean, John the Baptist would say elsewhere when he's talking about Jesus, he would say, you know, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. What if we were a church that constantly said we want Jesus to increase, we want ourselves to decrease, we want to engage the city in such a way that says we have nothing to gain but everything to lose. And so we're willing to lose everything. We're willing to risk everything because we're so gripped by who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. Is our life and our ministry capable of shaking the foundations of other people's lives simply by being present, simply by being participants in the city that we live in, 
simply by carrying out our convictions into every nook and cranny of the lives we lead. And so Herod here, he's, been, he's come in contact with John the Baptist. He fears John. He respects John. He's heard him so much so that he keeps asking John the Baptist to come and share more. He's perplexed, but he keeps hearing him gladly. His conscience is being stirred. But although his conscience was stirred, it still remained an indecisive conscience. You see this in verse 21. His conscience is stirred by John the Baptist. But then in verse 21, listen to what it says. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now this was no so you think you can dance kind of dance. This was most likely a provocative, provocative dance. And what really makes it Odd is that this girl who we're told by one Jewish historian was named Salome, and, and that's Herod's niece. So it's quite a perverted scene. She's dancing in front of Herod and all of these guests, and the king says to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's quite a request. I don't just want you to kill this guy. I want you to bring me his head. She kind of adds that in there, showing that she's just as twisted as her mom and everyone else was, who was part of this rather twisted family tree that were, that were the Herodians. And so she says this, and then verse 24, and she went out and asked her mother for that, or she comes back, sorry, Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So what happened what happened from verse 20 down to verse 27? Well, one, it's not enough to simply have a, con a conscience that is stirred by the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus desires for us. What matters is how we, what we choose to do with that conviction, what we choose to do with the stirring of our consciences. And in Herod's case, who's set here as a bad example, we find an indecisive conscience. Because when the opportunity arose in verse 21, Herodias, who had nursed a grudge against John the Baptist, took full advantage of Herod's lack of conviction. The fact that Herod had no core conviction holding him together, because of that, Herodias took full advantage. You see, ultimately what this boils down to is that if you have an indecisive conscience, if you are a person who's oftentimes stirred up by the things of God, but you never choose to act on the things that are stirring up within you, and, and you remain indecisive, you remain passive, ultimately you will always be, people will always be able to manipul manipulate you. An indecisive conscience is a conscience that can be manipulated. And that's precisely what's going on here. Herod is the spiritual moral equivalent of a jellyfish. He has no backbone. He has no spine. He's able to be impressed upon. He's able to be pushed around. He's able to be shaped and molded by those around him. And his indecision is, in a sense, a decision because his indecision means that he's now capable of being manipulated. And that's exactly what happened. You see, if you don't have any convictions, if you're not carried along by a core gospel conviction, you will always be pushed around as you journey through the world that you live in. 
You will be exactly what James tells us not to be in his book when he says, don't be a double-minded person who says one thing in one moment, only say another in the next, a person who's easily pushed around, a person who's easily uh, changes and falters, and there's really no integrity to that person. That's what we're getting after here. There's no core conviction. There's no spine in Herod. And what's interesting is as you read, as you consider Herod's example here, and you consider what the scripture talks, what the rest of the scriptures talk about when it describes a person who is who might be considered cowardly. When you read about the cowardly in the New Testament, don't think a person who's afraid of the dark. A cowardly person in the New Testament is someone who has no conviction. A cowardly person in the scriptures is someone who can be easily pushed around and manipulated by others. And what's frightening about that is that when you get to the end of the Bible and you read Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, and you have a list of the types of people who will not enjoy the presence of God for all eternity, but those who are exiled from his presence for all eternity, you know what's on top of the list? The very first descriptor is the cowardly. People without conviction, people without a core unifying substance to who they are as they journey through the world that is, specifically as that relates to Jesus, those are considered the cowardly and they are on top of the list of those who will not enjoy the presence of God when all is said and done. So it's a scary thing. Herod is treading on dangerous ground in this moment. He has no conviction. He's cowardly, and things are not going well because when the window of opportunity opened up for his wife Herodias to take advantage of him, it began to shut on him. His indecision was a sense a decision, and his conviction, or lack thereof, began to move his conscience in a direction he did not want to go, a, a direction that you and I ultimately never want our consciences to go because the move in Herod's life is from a stirred conscience to an indecisive conscience to ultimately a seared conscience, a seared conscience that becomes numb to the voice of God in the future. And I'll show you that if you just kind of hold that spot, Luke chapter 23, it'll actually come online. You'll see his seared conscience in this moment. About one year later, Herod finds himself standing before Jesus, and he's talking to Jesus. He's excited about meeting Jesus. And this is what goes down, beginning of verse 8 in Luke chapter 23. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but get this. He's questioning Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Jesus would not respond to Herod's inquiries. He didn't respond to Herod in that moment because ultimately a seared conscience is a conscience that has severed itself off from hearing the voice of God. Herod had opportunity to respond to the, God of, to the voice of God coming through the prophet John the Baptist. And he silenced that voice by executing him in a cowardly fashion. So that one year later he's standing before Jesus and he cannot hear the voice of God coming to, through him through God himself. It's a seared conscience. It's a, it's a seared conscience that has silenced the voice of God. And this is where we never want to get in our lives. 
We never want to get to this point in our journey. And I, I can't tell you when exactly that type of moment hits in a person's life. I, I don't have that kind of information. I'm just putting out Herod's example for us to consider and for us to be challenged by. Because what you see going down in Herod's life is the type of thing that is echoed in Hebrews chapter 3, where we're told, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, 15, today, today, in this moment, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts against it. In other words, any time your conscience is stirred by the gospel, respond to it. Any time Jesus begins to swell up within you a conviction to carry out some aspect of your faith, do not harden your heart against that voice. Respond positively to what Jesus is swelling up within you. And it's imperative that we respond positively because we really don't know. We really don't know when things might change for us. Just like Herod did not know exactly when things would change for him. It's not unlike the example of, human, of the human condition that J.R.R. Tolkien communicates in his trilogy, his story, The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's interesting that as, as he was writing that story, it's a big story, there's a lot in it. I mean, lots of scenes, lots of characters, lots of events. But as he was writing the story, there was only one moment where he was writing it and he was moved to tears. Just one moment when he actually cried while writing that story. And it happened towards the end of the second book, The Two Towers. And it happened when Gollum, who, who was this hobbit who had gone to the dark side basically, whose desire for power and this ring of power had consumed him and it turned him into this nasty little creature, unrecognizable of who he used to be. And so Gollum is hanging out with Frodo and Sam and there's a moment where Frodo and Sam, they're asleep and they're on their journey to destroy this ring of power and Gollum's there and and it's interesting because he's sitting there watching Frodo and Sam. He's been listening. He's thinking about the conversations that they've been having along the way. And, and something's beginning to stir within him. And Tolkien cues us into it this way. Because every time you see uh, Gollum's eyes being described as green, that's kind of his evil side. He, he's, he's, he's acting out of that evil character when his eyes are green. But there's a moment in this scene where his, the green goes away. And he kind of sobers up. And he starts thinking, you know, I might not want to to take the ring of power. I might want to help them along the way. And it got to the point where Gollum even wanted to put his hand out on Frodo's knee and just kind of caress his knee. And in that moment, as he was starting to do so, Sam woke up and he looked over and he didn't trust Gollum. He was very suspicious of him. And this is what happened. He woke up and he says to him, Hey, you, what are you up to? Nothing, nothing, said Gollum softly. Nice master, nice master. Where have you been to? What? And you're sneaking back? And then Sam says, you old villain. And then Gollum, in, that, in response to that, Gollum withdrew himself. And a green glint flickered under his heavy lids, almost spider-like he looked now. Crouched back on his bent limbs and with his protruding eyes, the fleeting moment had passed, and get this, beyond recall. And when Tolkien wrote those words, beyond recall, that's when he began to cry. Because that's when he realized this insight into the human condition that you and I do not have the power and the control over our consciences and over our hearts as we think we do. In other words, if we feel open to doing something that is stirring within us and acting on a particular conviction that is being informed by the gospel, we must not think that that window of opportunity will remain open forever. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews, today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be indecisive because an indecisive conscience will one day slide into a seared conscience. And we don't want that of us. We don't want to be people who lack gospel conviction. We don't want to be people who are easily pushed or being pushed around and manipulated by outside forces of others and those types of things. We want to be people of conviction. So the question then becomes, well, how do we cultivate this? How do we cultivate uh, conviction in our relationship with Jesus? Well, I would just lay out a few practical thoughts for you to consider tonight. One is to identify your greatest fear. If you're going to cultivate conviction, if you're going to respond to what, all that God is for us in Jesus, you need to identify your greatest fear. And here's what I mean by that. You look back to the text, it says that Herod feared John, but then later we find that he had a greater fear. Yes, he feared John, he respected John, but he feared the loss of face before his powerful friends more than he feared John. And so if we're going to cultivate conviction, we've got to identify our greatest fear, just as Soren Kierkegaard is getting at when he made that statement. You know, sin happens anytime we build our identity upon anything but God. And when we build our identity upon anything but God, that foundation is what we fear losing above all else. And for Herod, it was the esteem and the respect he garnered from the guests at his party. And so that was his greatest fear. It was, and this fear, this fear actually made Herod a pawn. It made him a pawn in Herodias' story as she was able to work him towards her ends. And ultimately, your greatest fear will make you a pawn too. Ultimately, your greatest fear will make you a pawn so that other people can push you and lead you towards their own ends. You will find yourself manipulatable, able to be manipulated. And so when your conscience is stirred, you want to let that, let that help kind of unveil and disclose what your greatest fear is. What is the one thing you fear losing or lacking in your life above all else? And when you, this begins to happen, just as inherit as he's... His, Conscience is stirred in verses 19 and 20, then you want to begin to honor heroes of conviction. This is exactly what he does here. He honors this hero of conviction. There's something unique and distinct about John the Baptist. And so he, he's attracted to John. He's, he's listening to what John has to say. He's perplexed by John and he listens to him over and over and over again. And what's interesting is that John never changes his message. When you look up and he says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, the language there in verse 18 is that John just kept saying that. This was his message every time. Look, it's not right what you're doing. It's not right what you're doing. It's not right what you're doing. God has more for you. God has more for you. God has more for you. And so, John, so Herod here, he, he's got this hero of conviction in John the Baptist, and I think you and I would do well to identify heroes of conviction in our lives as well. You see, I'm not the kind of person who thinks the only hero a person should have is Jesus. I think as followers of Jesus, we should have models, we should have heroes of conviction that we look to to help us see what it means to not build our lives on a false foundation, but to build our lives on the foundation of Christ. I think that's why this story, in part, is provided in this gospel. Mark is putting John the Baptist forward to us as a hero of conviction, as someone we should imitate. It's the very same reason Hebrews chapter 11 is in the Bible. This list of men and women who carried out their convictions, who are faithful to the end. And in that same section, we are told, imitate them. Look to them as examples and follow their model. 
And so if you and I want to cultivate conviction, it starts when we begin to identify our greatest fear. And then we begin to honor heroes of conviction in our lives, whether it be people we read about in Scripture, whether it be missionary biographies that we read on our, in our leisure, whether it be one another. As we begin to look to see how conviction is being carried out in each one of our lives, we want heroes of conviction. But ultimately, we don't stop there. Because this is what Herod did. Herod stopped with his hero of conviction, which was John the Baptist. He did not go to the one that John the Baptist was pointing him to. So if we want to cultivate conviction, we want to identify our greatest fear. We want to identify and honor heroes of conviction. But ultimately, we want to look beyond that and hope in the ultimate hero, which is Jesus. Yes, John the Baptist in this story is presented as a, as a hero of conviction, but he's there to ultimately to point us to the ultimate hero who is Christ. See, there's, a, there's some symmetry here between this story in Mark 6 and then Jesus' story at the end of the gospel. The way Mark kind of lays the story out, he's showing that there's a connection between what goes down in John the Baptist's life here as a type of foreshadowing of what would later happen to Jesus. So you have all these parallels. Consider just two of them. Both John the Baptist and Jesus were executed by a secular ruler who did not initially want to. Herod did not initially want to kill uh, John the Baptist. Pilate did not initially want to kill Jesus. So neither of those rulers wanted to kill these guys. But at the same time, both of these rulers were manipulated by outside forces. They were seized by the fear of men and other people's thoughts. And so they were impressionable. They were manipulated into doing so. And then you consider the end of the story in verse 29. After John the Baptist is executed, then his disciples heard of it. They came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And then you come to the end of the gospel and you see after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' followers, Jesus' disciples come and they take his body and they lay it in a tomb. Yes, John the Baptist is is an honorable hero of conviction. But ultimately, this story is here in this gospel to point us to the ultimate hero because this story reminds us, yes, John the Baptist died as a faithful servant, but Jesus ultimately died as the faithful Savior. John the Baptist's death only sets an example for us and our conviction. Jesus' death actually accomplishes something for us. He died so that our sins might be forgiven. He died so that we might be redeemed and reconciled to our God. Jesus' death accomplished something for us. So yes, John the Baptist is great, but Jesus is greater. And that's how we should view all of our heroes in the faith. They may be great men and women who carry out their convictions, faithful to the end, but no one is greater than Jesus. And so Mark, the way he puts this story in this gospel is just as a signal towards that end. Yes, John the Baptist died as a faithful servant, but Jesus died as the faithful Savior. And we know that because John the Baptist did not rise from the grave. He is not who Herod says he was at the beginning of this story. We know this because Jesus was the one who rose from the grave. No other person rose from the grave in the middle of human history. Only Jesus did that. So we put our hope in that ultimate hero because he's the only one who can ultimately carry us through to the end of our days so that you and I might be found faithful to the end. And so the bottom line is this, the fate of a faithful servant, whether it be John the Baptist or whether it be you, the fate of a faithful servant is intertwined with the fate of the faithful Savior. When you hope in the ultimate hero, Your fate becomes his fate. 
And when that becomes true of you, you have nothing to fear in this world. You can go to your death in hope. You can give your life knowing you ultimately have nothing to lose because as surely as Jesus rose from the grave, you will too. As surely as Jesus rose from the grave, we will too. His fate is our fate. We are intertwined with the Messiah. Therefore, he is our hope. He is the core of our lives. He is the conviction that is holding us together and carrying us through all the days of our lives. Let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to voice a prayer over us. And as I do, I want you to consider, I want you to consider whether or not your conscience is being stirred in this moment. And if your conscience is stirring, I want to plead with you, don't be indecisive. If your conscience is stirring, would you respond? Would you follow it to ultimately Jesus? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to administer grace towards you by exposing that within you that does not honor Jesus? And would you allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you by pointing you towards Jesus and let your hope be found in him? If your conscience is stirring, do not sit indecisively. Respond appropriately. Confess your fears. Honor heroes of conviction in your life but ultimately hope in the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask and I pray that you would give us grace to hear your voice this day in this moment. I pray that we would not harden our hearts against you and against your voice and against your word. I pray that our hearts would be found, would, that, that your gospel would find a home in our hearts constantly and that you would form us into men and women of conviction that you would form us into the type of church who will be faithful to the end. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.